Ephesians chapter 4. So we've been in Ephesians 4. This will be our third week. We're going to kind of finish chapter 4 this week. And, um, and so I want, to, I want to read to you. I really want to read you the whole chapter. So I think I will, okay? I want to do that, so I'm going to do that. It's always good to read the Bible in context. You know, it's real tempting for us to take verses and kind of pick them out because they apply to our certain situation or circumstance at the moment. And that's okay to do. I mean, that's totally fine um, sometimes, but sometimes that's also dangerous because we can take things out of context, and when we lose the context of what's being said in the Scripture, we misapply, and we can believe something um, that only either gives us part of the truth or part of the picture. Um, and we as human beings, because it's kind of our, our fallen nature, is to try to make things say what we want them to say. And we have a precedence in that. I mean, you go back to the very beginning, you go back to the Garden of Eden, and this is exactly what the enemy did with Adam and Eve. He took the words of God and he took what God said, but he took it out of context. And, and from that, from the words of God being taken out of context, man believed a lie. And man believed the lie because he wanted to believe the lie. And so the word of God taken out of context kind of gave him justification to do that. And so it's always good to read the scripture, study the scripture in context. The best interpretation of the Bible is the Bible. Period. And as you read the Bible, here's what... I'll tell you what pastors are guilty of. Pastors are really guilty of oftentimes studying the Bible to get a sermon. How do I know that? Because I'm a pastor. And I've spent countless hours basically studying the Bible to get sermons out of them. I'm going to tell you what really transformed um, my life and my faith was when I just decided that I would just start reading the Bible not just to get a sermon out of it, but just sit down and start reading and let, let the Word of God just wash over you. Not, not reading with an agenda, not reading because I've got a crisis and I'm trying to find an answer to my crisis, not reading because, you know, I need a specific answer about a specific question. The Bible can do all of those things. But if that's the only way we ever read the Bible, we're really, we're, we're missing so much and the danger is that we're going to believe things that that maybe we shouldn't believe we're going to hope in things and for things that maybe we shouldn't be hoping in and hoping for our hope is in Christ and the scripture was given to us to reveal Christ to us and i promise you Christ is revealed to us on every page of scripture and the holy spirit has been given to us so that we would have eyes to see Jesus. And in seeing him, we would be transformed by him and into the very same image. This is our destiny, to be conformed to the image of the Son. This is the destiny of every child of God. This is where God is bringing us to. And this is exactly what we're going to talk about today. So let's do it. Let's read uh, Ephesians 4. Here we go. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, 
When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? Christ came to us. He was he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanliness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him, And have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. That you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in the righteousness and holiness. Therefore putting away lying let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer. But rather let him labor working with his hands what is good. That he may have something to give him who has has need. And let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. But what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Let me read the next verse, first verse of chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ has also loved and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So in Ephesians chapter 4, when we began this, we see here in Ephesians 4 that God through Christ has given to the church gifts for the purpose of, of bringing us to maturity in Christ. That's what equipping is about. That's what being equipped for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. That's what this is about, that we are all on a journey and we're all headed to the same destination. That is to a perfect man, to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. This is the work of the Holy Spirit through a process that involves all of us and it involves all of life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, take your word, take your gospel and plant it into our hearts. 
bring forth as only you can, Lord, a harvest of righteous fruit, that the life of Christ would be made known through the life of his people. Father, we pray that you would do this because by this you are glorified. And in this process, God, we ask that you would help us find the fullness of your joy, that we would know it, that we would live it, that we would communicate it, and that it would ooze from our life in every way possible for all the world to see, to know that there is one hope, and that hope is in Christ. Amen. So this is the process that involves all of us in all of our life. So there's a process of being equipped. So Jesus gave gifts. Paul says he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. He did that, he says, so that the body of Christ, so that the saints, it actually says the saints. Now who's a saint? Well, depending on who you ask, you're going to get a different answer. So, you know, we're, we're going to start a study in, in uh, February that really is a study of the gospel. So, if somebody asks me, who's a saint, Pastor Jeff? And I would say, are you trusting in Jesus? And if they said yes, I would say, then you're a saint, according to the Bible. You're not a saint because you lived some ex- extraordinary life in the Pope or some council gave you a certificate and said, now this person has attained to sainthood because of their good works. Because we're not saved by our good works. God doesn't love us because we do good works. He loves us in spite of the fact that we're incapable of doing good works apart from his grace. And he loved us anyways. And when God saves us, when we're born again, when we're made children of God, the Bible calls us Saints. So don't, don't read more into that word than you should read into it. Don't, don't read less, but don't read more. To be called a saint of God means something. And it means our life should look a certain way, should be a certain way. That's absolutely true. And the Bible says that the saints... All the believers, pastors included. Because when it's all said and done, I may be a pastor. That might be my calling. That might be my gifting for a specific purpose of equipping the body of Christ. But when it's all said and done, we're all under the headship of Jesus Christ. We're all believers. We're all saints. You might not be called to be a pastor, but you're called to be a saint by the grace of God. And as a saint, just like I'm a saint... I am called to the work of ministry. In that work of ministry, so what does it mean? The process of being equipped that we become and that we make disciples of Jesus. This is the commission Jesus gave his saints. This is what he gave to the church that we would go and make disciples of the nations. Baptize them, teach them all that he commanded. When does the commandment of Jesus begin? Matthew 1.1? 1, 1? Oh, no, when the words turn red in your Bible? No. <laughs> Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. So we know from reading the whole counsel of God, Jesus was the person of the Trinity at creation, bringing everything into existence. The gospel begins at Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. The teachings of Jesus, the commandments of Jesus begin at the beginning and they are throughout the entirety of the word of God and if we don't if we don't read and study and allow the Holy Spirit to give us illumination and revelation concerning the whole counsel of God we're going to misinterpret what that commission means and, and we might get into some form of legalism or think that somehow we're saved by our works or we can gain merit with God and we're climbing some ladder to get some prize from God. 
listen, there are real rewards. There is a real prize. There's a real goal for us to reach toward. The Bible teaches that. But it also presents this picture for us in Revelation that there are these guys who have crowns and guess what they're doing with them? They're throwing them back at the feet of Jesus. Because whatever reward, whatever prize, whatever we may get in that day, we'll, we'll gain that and we will never doubt for one moment of eternity that the only way we received anything of merit was by the amazing grace of God. And all glory and all honor will go right back to the one that it is due. And that is to the Lord Jesus. To the God in heaven. So this process of being equipped is that we become and that we make disciples of Jesus Christ. And there's a process of building up the body of Christ. He says we we do this equipping for the purpose of building up, for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ, that we are to be built up. We are to be built up while we are building each other up, that while we're building one another up. So if the only time we're being built up or building one another up is for two, two hours or an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, we got a problem. And I believe with all of my heart, this is... This is a very important gathering. It's an important gathering for lots of reasons. The least of which not being that it gives witness to powers and to principalities. It gives witness to your neighbors. That God is such an important part of your life. That the worship God is such an important part of your life. That you set aside specific time, specific place to go and to do that with a specific group of people. But this is, this is not the church because this is the building where the church meets. This is the church because you're the church. You are the people of God. You are the called out assembly that God called out from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation. And he called you out to make you his child. For you to become his saint. And in becoming his saint, the Bible says you have a responsibility. It's called the work of ministry. When do you do that work? The better question is this. When do you not do that work? Don't ask the question, well, when do I do the work of ministry? The real question is, when do I not do it? The question is not, how do I do the work of ministry? The question is, how do I not do it? We just did a parenting seminar uh, Friday and Saturday. It was awesome. Because it didn't just apply to parents. It applied to, it applied to, Christians, whether you're a parent or not. It applied to how you relate to people, how you function with people. And you realize that our calling to be the church, our calling to do the work of ministry, it, it's, it's all-encompassing. There's never a time when we're not doing this. There, because there's never a time that you're not the church. You're the church in this building. You're the church out of this building. You're the church driving in your car. You're the church in your workplace. You're the church laying in your bed at night sleeping. You're the church feeding your children breakfast in the morning. You're the church mopping the floor. You're the church mowing the grass. You're the church shopping at HEB or Walmart. You're the church doing everything you do. Because your life is always giving witness purposefully, directly, and indirectly. Now, how do we live with that consciousness and that understanding? Man, this is where we pray that God in his grace by the Holy Spirit would begin to give us this understanding. That I, you know, I don't have some, some uh, alarm on my phone that goes off and says, remember, you're the church. I mean, you know, if you need to do that, go ahead and do that. But but you got to get beyond that. Who you are. It's like worship. Worship's not an action. Worship doesn't begin with an action. Worship begins with an identity. Worship is not what you do. Worship is who you are. And what you do is defined by who you are. 
You don't change your behavior to become somebody else. Listen, God in his grace has to change you from the inside out. He's got to change you at the very core of your nature. And in that change, then guess what? Things are going to change on the outside. But until they change here, they're not going to change out here. So this is the process. This is a process bringing us to a perfect man. This is what Paul writes here. The equipping of the saints for the building up of the body of Christ till we all come, he says, to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect, to a complete, to a mature man. That's where we're coming to, to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ as fully mature disciples as fully mature children parents you have an expectation that your children will grow up to maturity and it's a right expectation when God causes us to be born again there is an expectation that we will grow up to maturity now I said in this parenting seminar uh, Friday night and half the day Saturday wishing that I would have seen this you know about 35 years ago, 30 years ago. My kids probably wish I would have too. Uh, But I didn't, and that's okay, because I trust the Lord. Uh, But in watching that, and in, in realizing, and God does this all the time in all kinds of ways, and we shouldn't dwell, we shouldn't dwell on our mistakes, but we should learn from them, right? And so, um, as I sat there and I took the material in, it was really great. It was amazing and transforming in in a lot of ways. As I took that in, uh, you know, though I may have questioned some of the ways I did things, or I might have thought to myself, man, I wish I'd have known that, you know, when my kids were little. I wish I would have practiced that more. What I never did was question my intent as a father. Because my intent as a father was, was, was always the same. I'm, my, my intent was to raise my children the best way I could. To bring them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And yeah, I can look back and you can look back and we can see our mistakes. But, but our heart was to do the right thing. Now, that's coming from who? That's coming from me. I'm telling you, this is what I'm thinking. Well, who am I? Well, the Bible says I'm a fallen sinner. (laughs) Jesus said, hey, if you earthly dads know how to give good gifts to your children and you're just sinful, how much more your heavenly father? So I'm thinking, man, here I am with all my failures, with all my frailty, with all my fallenness, And, and, you know, my heart was to raise my children in love and bring them to the place of maturity. If that's my heart as a fallen member of the human race, yes, redeemed by the grace of God, but, but still fallen, still imperfect, still prone to failure, to sinfulness. Man, parents are just as selfish as their kids are. And if that's our intent, now think about God. Think about our Father in heaven. If God causes you to be born again, is he not, as a good father, going to bring you up to a... Isn't he going to bring you to maturity, to fullness, to full-grown maturity? The answer is yes, he's going to do that because he's a good father. He's a much better father than I am. His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. His ways are higher. His thoughts are higher. Praise God. Aren't you glad? And we look at the Father in heaven. Can we question? You never should wonder, God, I wonder if you're going to fail with me. He's not going to fail with you. He's not going to. And this is why We have every reason to trust him. 
Now, it might be easy to trust him sitting in this room on Sunday morning. That's not the real test. It might be easy to be the church here on Sunday morning. That's not the real test. The real test is, can you be the church everywhere else in all the other circumstances you're going to find yourself in? This is the process. This is the work God is doing in us in all of these ways. So there's a process growing us up in all things into Christ, Christ who is the head of the body. That the whole body is working and growing and building itself up and functioning together in love. Giving glory. Giving glory to God. This is the process that is at the same time intensely practical while intensely mystical and always completely spiritual. Remember, spiritual doesn't mean intangible. Spiritual doesn't mean vaporous. Spiritual is as solid as this, actually more so, because spiritual means eternal. The things that we have in Christ, they are eternal. They are real. They are tangible. They are solid. As solid as this concrete slab this building is built on. More solid than that. When we talk about the work that God's doing in us as individuals, as the church as a whole, it is intensely practical. It's not going to happen apart from you reading your Bible, studying the scripture, praying. It's not going to happen apart from you gathering as the body of Christ and doing what the scripture says, building each other up, provoking each other to love and good works, praying for one another, encouraging one another, learning together, worshiping together, singing together, praying together, it's not going to happen apart from those intensely practical things. Sometimes we want to make this work of the Holy Spirit and this work of discipleship and us growing up into maturity in Christ, this mystical thing that, that is, you know, I can't ever quite get a hold of it. Now listen, take hold of your Bible, okay? Just grab it in your hand, break it open, and let it begin to do its work. It's the inspired, powerful word of God. Yeah, but Pastor Jeff, I don't understand it when I read it. You know, when I told my algebra teacher that in school, she didn't, she didn't say, oh, well, sorry. Well, I guess I'll just give you an A and you don't have to worry about the rest of the class. She said, well, go back and do it again until you do understand it. Because here's the thing. It's not about you having a carnal understanding. It's about you first <coughs> inviting, wanting, desiring, being desperate for God to do a work in your heart and you continually washing your mind with this word. And before you know it, the hardness that was there is gone. And that word is beginning to soak in and fill you and change you and transform you by the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's the thing. This process is at the same time intensely practical while intensely mystical and completely spiritual. It's not performed apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the mystical part. That's the magic. You don't make it happen. The Holy Spirit makes it happen. But it doesn't happen apart from you. It doesn't happen without you. Because God in His grace has made you an integral part of His plan and purpose in creation. So it's performed by the Holy Spirit, by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the work of the church. That's all of us, individually and corporately. In Taylor at Christ Fellowship and other churches in other parts of the world, whether it's a denomination or like us, just a non-denominational independent fellowship, 
Don't get hung up on those things. It's the church of the Lord Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit doing the work, but Jesus has chosen to not work apart from his church. But here's one of the most important things of this. It's also performed in the life we live in the midst of a fallen world and a fallen humanity. Have you guys, I don't know if it's you, if it's just me, but have you guys noticed that it's not just good things that happen to us? Have you ever noticed that some of the things that come to our remembrance quicker than anything else are not the good things, but the hard things. I'm not saying it should be that way. I'm just saying it is that way because oftentimes this is where we find ourselves dwelling. I mean, we're, we're dwelling, we're obsessing over the hard things. Again, how do you think I know this? I'm a pastor. We all experience the fallenness of this world and the fallenness of humanity in ourselves and in the people and the relationships all around us. I know some of you could tell some really good stories about that. And it's true. So this is the highest calling and the greatest work that can be done. This is the work that God is doing in his children of bringing them to a place of fullness and maturity. He's made you, he's made me part of that work. He's doing that work in us, he's doing that work through us. It's a calling each one of us have as saints of God, as a child of God. If you count yourself today a child of God, This is what you are called to. You're called to this work of the ministry. You're called to build up the body. You're called to be built up and you're called to build up others. You're called to be a disciple. You're called to make disciples. You're called to give glory to Jesus Christ. It doesn't start here. It doesn't end here. It starts by the grace of God and it never ends. By the grace of God. It permeates every aspect of our life as believers. So the gospel is to be preached. It's to be taught. We're to read it. We're to write it. We're to pray it. We're to sing it. We're to speak it. But most importantly, we are to live it. The power of the gospel is most clearly Revealed through the power of a transformed life. We can talk about the power of the gospel all day long, and it's powerful. But the gospel's power is most clearly seen through the transformation that it produces in the life of God's people. Now, I want to warn you to never, ever measure the power of the gospel by the measure of transformation you see in someone's life. That would be a very grave mistake to make. Because the power of the gospel is, period. It it is powerful. It is the power of God to salvation. So the power of the gospel is inherent and it is without question. It's powerful whether you see it or not. And we could turn all the lights off in this building. We have no windows in here. It would be pitch black. It would be hard for you to see your hand in front of your face. But I promise you, if you went over that little socket over there and took the plate off and pulled the wires out and grabbed those wires though you couldn't 
see the power, I promise you, you would know there's power. And if you survived, you would live to tell the story. And if you didn't survive, well, you can tell your story to Jesus. So the power of the gospel is not measured by what we can see. But the power of the gospel is most clearly revealed when we see a life transformed. And this is why God commands us to preach, to teach, to read, to write, to pray, to sing, to live the gospel because God is not just changing lives for two, two hours on a Sunday morning. God is changing lives 24-7 from here to eternity. And he's doing it in ways that you and I sometimes can see, but very often in ways we can't see. But as children of God, as people of God, as people of faith, we should never wonder whether God is working and whether God is moving. Because he never stops working, he never stops moving, he never stops bringing his body, his children, to this place of maturity and fullness. So we live the gospel. We're reading through Psalm 119 on Wednesday nights. And there was a part of Psalm 119 where David writes, he said, I turned my feet to your commandments. We made note of that in that David didn't just say, I turned my heart or I turned my eyes. He said, I turned my feet to your commandments. So when we talk about living the gospel, we're talking about walking out the faith and manifesting the life of Christ that's in us. So Paul says, you are God's field. Jesus said, the word is the good seed. Where does the farmer plant its seed? He plants it in a field. And why does a farmer plant the seed? So that he can get an increase of the field or so that he can get an increase of the seed? I mean, that sounds like a just a silly question because it's so obvious what the answer is, right? Yet we often live our lives as believers as though we're trying to get an increase of the dirt. We're planting seed out there and it's about the dirt increasing. It's about me increasing. And the Bible is teaching us it's not about you increasing, it's about Christ. This is all about Jesus. But here's the good news. As Jesus increases, as the life of Christ is made manifest and revealed and the knowledge of the glory of God fills the earth. What's happening to us? Man, we are experiencing the fullness of his joy. We are experiencing the love, the peace, the joy, the fulfillment that we will never gain any other way. And so let's look at some intensely practical things that Paul writes for us here in his letter to the Ephesians. This is what he's saying. He's saying, look, you guys are not children. You're to grow up. And your life and your maturity should look a certain way. So here's where Paul becomes intensely practical. Look at verse 20. Ephesians 4, verse 20. But you have not so learned Christ. What, what, does that tell, what does that tell you? There was some learning that took place. Which means there was teaching and there was learning. There was something being spoken. There was something being heard. This is exactly what Paul says here. He says, but you have not so learned Christ or indeed have you heard him and have not been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus? Now, I hope you're not just hearing me. Because the point of hearing me is to not hear me, it's to hear him. 
That's why I spend much of my time reading and teaching from the scripture. That's why I read to you Ephesians chapter 4, because here's, here's what I believe. The very act of reading that chapter in Ephesians, the, the Holy Spirit potentially could do more by you just hearing the word of God read than, than I could ever do in me trying to convince you or use some level of charisma or speaking ability, which I don't profess to have any of those. That's why I love Paul. I came to you in fear and in weakness and in trembling. Paul said, there was nothing about me and my delivery that should have made you trust in the gospel. It was the demonstration and the power of the spirit. Not that I did magic tricks for you. He's saying it was the inherent power of the gospel. It was the spirit of God that caused something to, t- to transpire in your heart that birthed faith in you. Your very faith gives witness to the power of the gospel, not my power to persuade you because I didn't come to persuade you to believe anything. I just came as a messenger to deliver the message. So there's learning. He says in verse 22, put off, look what he says. Put off the old man. Concerning your former conduct, put off the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Put off the old man. That phrase in the Greek is literally the same. It's it's a word picture of me taking this jacket and putting it off. That is the exact picture being conveyed there. Put off the old man. Who is the old man? He's that guy that was crucified with Christ. So here's what he's really saying. Stop carrying around your corpse. Leave it buried, leave it past, and live in the new life and the resurrection power you have in Christ. Renew your mind, verse 23. Put off the old man and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. How do you do that? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by the washing of the water of the word. Then he says this, putting on, oh, wait, that's my command. Putting on the new man. The same way that I put off the old man, I put on the new man like a garment. Now, the Holy Spirit did that, right? He brought you from old to new, from death to life. But Paul's making a point. We can't just sit around and say, well, I've been born again now, so it's up to God. He's going to make me do all these things. No, you're going to have to get up and do them. He's going to give you the grace, the desire, the inclination. He's going to give you the power, but he's not going to do it for you. Nowhere does the Bible teach that. That's why we're not robots. We're not puppets that God, God's not making me walk and talk right now. I'm doing this. You, I, have to put on the new man. I got to walk in that. I got to live in that reality. If I'm truly a child of God, then my life should convey that. Put away lying. Why? Because Jesus is the truth. Put away lying to one another. Verse 20. Five, Verse 26, putting away unrighteous anger. It says, put away anger and don't let the sun go down on your wrath. The Bible doesn't say never be angry. It says don't be unrighteously anger. There is a self-righteous, or there's a righteous anger. There's a self-righteous anger that's wrong. We need to be really careful. My advice would be try not to live and walk in anger because it's too easy to get over into unrighteous anger but we should be righteously angry at sin we should be righteously angry at those things that oppose God that rise up but vengeance doesn't belong to us it belongs to the Lord verse 27 giving no place to the devil that means you can give place to him so the Bible says don't do that don't 
give place to the devil. Unrighteous anger is one way you can do that. Lying is a way you can do that. Putting on the old man, putting off the new man is a way you can do that. I get frustrated and say, oh, to heck with it all. I'm just going back to the old ways. You do that, you're giving place to the devil. And your flesh doesn't need any help. It's, it's, a, it's a big enough enemy of you uh, without the help of the devil. You tracking with me? Verse 29. Working with our hands, no longer stealing, but giving. Don't steal, give. You don't have anything to give? Go to work and get something so that you can give to those in need. Do you see the intensely practical application of this mystical reality that the Holy Spirit is doing this work in us and he's using everyone and everything around us, the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful, the bitter, the sweet, he's using it all. It's glorious. Putting away corrupt speech, verse 29, speaking what is good for necessary edification, imparting grace. That our speech would impart grace. We do that with our children and our children don't think our speech sounds very graceful sometimes because we're telling them to do things that they don't want to do or preventing them from doing things that they want to do but it's necessary for their edification, for their building up, for their growing up. If, If we let our kids do everything they wanted to do, they probably wouldn't make it to grown ups, right? So we don't do that. So this doesn't mean This is why one of the most loving things God can tell us is no. (laughs) But we all know from experience and because we were all children at one time and we can remember these episodes when we wanted our parents to say yes and we couldn't understand why they wouldn't say yes. And then you grow up and you have your own kids and you realize, man, some of the most loving things my parents ever did was say no to me. But it didn't feel very loving at that time. That's graceful speech. That's edifying speech. It's not judged based on how it makes us feel. It's judged based on what the result of that speech and what's implying is going to be. Living consistent with the seal of our redemption. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit, Paul writes. What does that mean? He says the Holy Spirit is is the one who has sealed you for the day of redemption. The seal of our redemption is the Holy Spirit. That means you live right now with the seal of God on you. If you're a child of God, if you're a born again, blood-bought, redeemed child of God, the Spirit of God has put his seal on you. You can't see it. I can't see it. But God knows it's there. And Paul says, if you're professing faith in Christ, if you profess to trust in Jesus, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. So let your life bear witness of the seal that you bear. Because though you might not be able to see it, here's what he says in the third chapter of Ephesians, powers and principalities in heavenly places, they know whether you're sealed or not. And when they look at the seal on you, what is your life communicating to the powers and the principalities? What witness are you giving to them? Does your life make a mockery of who God is or does your life give witness to his glory and his grace? Doesn't mean we live perfect lives because we don't. But what what a beautiful picture of God's grace when we can admit, hey, I blew it whether it's to our children or whether it's to our brothers and our sisters, say, you know what? I'm sorry. I blew it. My attitude, my voice, my actions were sinful. Would you forgive me? That's a witness to powers and principalities. Because all the devil knows is anger and bitterness and wrath and vengeance, and he wants to just give everybody what's due them. Tarnish the glory of God. And when we operate in the grace of God, man, there is no greater witness of God's glory. Living consistent with the seal of our redemption, not grieving the Holy Spirit. Let all these things, he says, be put away from you. Let bitterness, 
be put away from you. Bitterness as opposed to kindness. Because there's nothing kind about bitterness. Let wrath be put away from you as opposed to tenderheartedness. Wrath comes from a heart of bitterness and it's hard. He says put anger. This is lasting chronic resentment as opposed to forgiving one another. Put it away. Clamor. It's the outcry or the loud, angry outburst that comes. See, all these are progressive. Bitterness in the heart produces wrath, produces anger, this, this resentment we live with. And, and from that, we have these outbursts of wrath. And that turns into what the Bible calls evil speaking or slander. The Bible says, put it away, put it away from you. And then Paul ends that section with this. With all malice. The word malice very simply means evil. And what Paul is painting here, he's listed bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking. Unless you think that those are only the things that you need to deal with, he says, with all malice, let let it all be put away. Put it away with all malice. In other words, malice is that evil that is the source of every form of evil, whether it's bitterness or wrath or anger or slander. He says, put away the evil from you and from your hearts because it grieves the Holy Spirit because that's not who the Holy Spirit is. And when you live that way, when you act that way, when you think that way, you are living and acting and thinking and your very witness is contrary to what you've been sealed by. And whether you can see it or not, and most of the time we can't because we're blind to it, there are others who can see it. And they should see a witness that gives glory to God that is consistent when they look at the field that we are the harvest they should see is the life and the fruit of Christ so God's working in and through all things so Paul says he he ends that and he says so be he says put away these things and be kind to one another be tender hearted to one another be forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. He throws that in as a reminder when we don't want to forgive, that it's not, we don't forgive because someone deserves our forgiveness, because we didn't deserve God's forgiveness, but God gave it to us. We forgive not because someone deserves it, we forgive because Christ forgave us. Freely we have given, freely we have received, Freely give is what Jesus said to his disciples. So he said it to us and says it to us. So God's working through all of these things. So we see this is especially was brought home to me as I sat in this parenting seminar. We see in parenting how God not only reveals the sin in the heart of our children, but through our response to sinful behavior, he reveals the sin in our own heart. This obviously does not apply to parents and children alone. God uses all of our relationships from our most intimate to those seemingly insignificant to reveal what is in our own heart. Our own unkind, hard, angry, clamorous, evil response in specific situations reveals the sin in our own heart. And God in his grace works through these moments to reveal our true need. We can't see our need because we're so often focused on the injustice or the thing that's pressing against me. And what God wants us to do is to see with eyes of faith the true need that exists in our own hearts. So God allows us to be subjected to all sorts of situations and circumstances that reveal not what is in the heart of others, but what is in our own heart. 
And when we encounter the sinfulness of others, our own sinful response reflects not their sin, but the sin that's in our very own hearts. God does this in his grace so that we can see our own sin. And when we're able to see our own sin, we can begin to walk free from that sin by the working of God's grace through the power of the Holy Spirit And the very things that we often resist and run away from are the very things God uses to open our eyes to our own sin and to reveal in us the need for his powerful grace and transformation. You can run, but you can't hide. You can run away today, but you're just going to run to the very same thing. You know why? Because God's a good father and he loves you and he's not going to let you run away from the things that he's put in your life to cause you to see something. Listen, I'm saying this because this is me. I'm a blind man. And God's opened my eyes to a lot of things, but there's still a lot of things I know he needs to open my eyes to. And what didn't feel like the grace of God, what didn't look like the grace of God was absolutely the grace of God because God loved me enough. Let me just be personal for a moment. God loved me enough to reveal my blindness and my sinfulness so that there could take place a work of transformation. I have a big sign. You might not be able to see it, but it says still under construction. Okay? So give me some grace, and I'll give you grace too. So we choose every day, many times over, whether we're going to run or blame shift or whether we're going to submit to God's graceful work of transformation. Walking free from your own sinfulness will, will be you putting off your old man and putting on the new man. It'll be you putting away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, And all malice, it's going to be you, it's going to be me being kind and tenderhearted and forgiving to one another. Those are just some of the ways that this is going to be manifest and made known and revealed in our lives. Walking free from your sinfulness, having a changed heart and a transformed life and a mind renewed according to the truth as it is in Jesus are not theoretical, philosophical ideations. A lot of times we read this stuff, we read the Bible, and we imagine, oh, I wish my life looked like that. Oh, I wish my life was like that. And we get all philosophical and theoretical, and we daydream about, you know, what if? That's not why God gave us the Scripture. That's not why God gave us the Holy Ghost. That's not why God sent His Son He didn't send his son to create a theory or a philosophy. He sent his son so that there could be real change, real transformation, real restoration, real renewal. We have come into a new creation if we are in Christ. It's real. It's real. And God wants us to really walk in it and to really live it and to really experience it. It's real on the ground Christianity. It's who the church is called to be in the grit and the grime and the mess of everyday life. But it's filled with the wonder and the awe of his love and joy and peace, the beauty of holiness. This is God making all things beautiful in his time. This is beauty for ashes and grace upon grace. This is Christ. Christ, who is our life. Walking out change and transformation is an action. It's what we do and what we think because it is who we are in Christ. It's turning our heart and turning our feet toward the Lord. It's our identity. Before it's ever what we do, we have to understand, we have to know, we have to get this revelation. This is who we are. It's our identity. And out of that identity will come our life.
it becomes our walking, our talking, and our living. So I challenge you the same way Paul challenged the Ephesians and the Holy Spirit challenges us. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Walk in truth. Walk in love. Walk in freedom. Walk as children of light in the Lord. Amen. Let's all stand. God brings us to moments in our life where we have a, a watermark experience. I had one in, in 1984 when I committed my life to Christ, July 19th. I still remember the day. I still remember the place. But something I've come to realize is that long before July 19th, 1984, God was working in my life. He was working when I had absolutely no idea he was working. He was working when I didn't even believe in him. When I didn't think of him. But I realize now as I look back in my life. Little things. Some are big things but little things. And I realize now. God was working. Before I was born, God was working. Before you were born, God was working. I, I don't believe in accidents. I don't think it's an accident that one person standing in this room, sitting in this room today, is here by accident. I don't believe that. For some reason, for some purpose, in His eternal purpose, and in the purpose and plan of your own individual personal life. For some reason, God has brought you to this place. Maybe it's just to hear Ephesians 4 read. I don't know. Maybe something out of what was said from the gospel today. I don't know. But here's the thing. It's not about what I said. It's not about any of that. It's about Jesus. Jesus brought you here because he has a plan and a purpose for you. And the Holy Spirit is working that out. Some of you are in the midst of situations and circumstances that are just about to kill you. I know two families, three families, four families right now who are walking through really hard things. And you know who you are as you walk through hard things. You don't walk alone. Christ is with you. He's brought you to this point in your journey. He's going to carry you to points beyond. Because he's a good father. He's got a good plan. And he's been working in ways that you'll never know. So my encouragement to you is to trust him even when it doesn't seem like he's working, when it doesn't feel like he's working, when it feels like you're going backwards, trust him. He never loses control. He never falls asleep. He never turns his head and loses track of where we are and what's happening to us. The devil never gets one over on him. The devil's not outside of his control. God's not up in heaven going, well, you know, son, if you'd have just had a little bit more faith, you know, I would have done this for you, but too bad, so sad. No, that's not who God is. Please believe that is not the God of our Bible. He had a plan before he said, let there be light. It's an eternal plan. It's still in force. I'm not professing and neither are you, I know, that you understand his plan. But here's what the Bible tells us. He's got one. But the Bible does tell us how to walk, how to live, what to trust in, what to hope in. 
So Father, I pray for all of us here today. We pray for your church, Lord. That you would in your grace empower us by your Holy Spirit. That Lord, when the darkness is so dark, we can't see. Lord, the word, your word, will be a lamp to our feet. It may only give us enough light to take one step at a time. But you will give us light to walk. Sometimes you'll give us light and space and ability to run. Sometimes we'll feel like running and even walking is impossible. But you've given us this promise to not be fearful, to be of good courage because you are with us. You do not leave us. You do not forsake us. Fear not for the Lord is with you. Father, we confess our sinfulness. We confess our fallenness. We confess our need. We confess our weakness. But we also confess the power of Christ's redemption, the power of the gospel, the power of the cross, the power of that death, and the power of that resurrection. We confess those in the face of our weakness. We say, Lord, be glorified and let your strength be made perfect in the midst of our weakness and give us the grace to trust you, to look to you, to lean upon you. We ask God that you would in your grace and in your power change us for your glory. Give us grace to walk in truth, to walk in love, to walk in freedom from our sinfulness and our old nature and to walk as children of light in the Lord that our lives would bring glory and honor to your name. They will because you promised they would. Because your glory is the end of all things. And when all is said and done, your glory will remain. Give us eyes to see it now. From here to eternity, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.